Welcome to Common Sense Institute's Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Alexa Eastberg, and I am a research analyst with Common Sense Institute. As an analyst, I am proud to help provide fiscal analysis on proposed policy changes facing Colorado. Policy changes can often have broad and long-term ripple effects. We utilize dynamic economic models and other tools to simulate economic impact scenarios across Colorado's economy. I hope you enjoy this episode as we dig into the data. And now, here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to the Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I'm chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. The conversation today covers a topic that we continue to talk about on the Digest because it touches so very many Coloradoans, particularly in today's environment. It has numerous ripple effects that impact the overall health and economic well-being of our state. The topic, housing. And today, we focus on how newly passed energy code legislation will impact affordability. My guests are the Common Sense Institute, Mike A. Laprino Fellow, Evelyn Lim, and CEO of the Colorado Association of Home Builders, Ted Lighty, and the Confluence Company's founder and president, Tim Walsh. Evelyn recently wrote a report entitled The Uncertain Future Cost of Colorado's Energy Infrastructure and Housing Affordability. This report looks at the cost of implementing recently passed legislation that requires the adoption of a new energy code for buildings as well as what electrification of the built environment could cost Coloradoans. Evelyn Lim is the former Regional 8 Director at the U.S. Housing and Urban Development and is now the Director of Policy and Research at the American Cornerstone Institute. Evelyn, it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me on, Earl. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for showing up again. Since 2017, Ted Lighty has been the CEO of the Colorado Association of Home Builders and CEO of the HBA of Metro Denver since 2020. Ted has extensive experience in the Colorado real estate, having served as Vice President of Government Affairs for the Colorado Association of Realtors. He has also chaired the Colorado Real Estate Alliance and the Colorado Competitive Council. Ted, it's great to see you. Earl, good to be with you. Thank you for having me. And Tim Walsh is the founder of Confluence Companies, which plans, designs, and builds and provides property management services here in Colorado. Since its founding... Confluence has managed the development and construction of over 1 billion in projects, including 3,000 multifamily residential units. Tim, great to have you today. Thanks, Earl. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into the discussion about energy codes, let's set the table and talk about the state of housing in Colorado. The housing market is changing. We saw a really competitive housing market over the last several years due in large part to an undersupply of housing. As interest rates rose, the housing market is cooling. Tim, you develop in housing. What's your forecast for the market? And will we continue to see a large demand even as interest rates increase? And what does that mean to housing affordability? Earl, I can tell you it's pretty bleak right now for housing affordability in Colorado. There's simply a huge supply and demand imbalance stemming from the Great Recession and the economic expansion that we've had over the last decade here in Colorado. You know, currently housing shortage is about 195,000 units, and that's all types. That's single-family homes, that's attached single-family 
for sale homes, condos, and apartment units, anything with a roof that provides somebody uh, a home. So, you know, the worst part of the story now is with inflation, uh, the cost of land uh, going up and materials and lack of supply, that is only going to get worse. We need to grow about 500,000 units more in Colorado by 2031. So in the next 10 years, we're going to be in a huge housing shortage if we don't figure out a way to build more housing. And that, that means we need to be building about 67,000 units per year to keep up. And let's put that in perspective for a minute. You know, the best year or the, the, the largest, you know, home building year in Colorado was in the 1970s when we built 65,000. You know, today we're building somewhere around forty to 45,000 housing units in Colorado. So we're talking about a 50% increase in housing uh, per year over the next 10 years just to get to a supply and demand balance. Uh, I want to follow up on that if I could. Uh, you have seen housing prices go up and go up significantly. The median price in Colorado, Denver, is significantly higher than out in the suburbs so if we're going to build additional housing like you're talking about, where's it going to be built? That's a great question, Earl. You know, there's a lot of pushback for higher density development in most suburban communities. Some are embracing it. But, yeah, it needs to be a combination of everything. I mean, we need to be building more condos for uh, empty nesters particularly to move into and first-time home buyers, which has traditionally been – the entry point into uh, home ownership. And then, you know, with the interest rates as high as they are right now, we can't forget about apartments. And we need apartments to house, you know, a lot of our young people as well as empty nesters that are selling their homes so the next generation can move into those neighborhoods. So I think it's something that, you know, municipalities need to look at their, their zoning and start embracing density where density belongs. Ted, I'm going to follow up with you. Does that, you know, what you're hearing align with what you are hearing in terms of demand? What are some of the other price drivers of housing affordability that we are seeing today? Yeah, so Tim touched on a lot of that. In, in residential construction, we call the five L's, right? We have land, labor, lumber, all materials, and laws, or loans or capital, and laws and regulations. As our national economist likes to say, you know, labor, labor lending, local regulatory restrictions, Lots or the cost of lots and the rising price of lumber and other materials are hampering new construction. Um, so what we try to do with policymakers is say, hey, these other four L's, right, the, the loans, the, the lots, the land, and the labor are huge impediments right now, huge challenges, cost challenges um, to producing a new roof or a new door. Um, so what we need to do is be very mindful of the public policy that we're passing uh, to make sure that we don't exacerbate any of those other cost pressures. Um, what we're seeing, unfortunately, is the opposite. So Tim hit on a really big chord, which is what's our land use? What's our land use going to be? How's our zoning? Does our zoning, does our land use encourage more housing or does it, you know, does it provide an impediment to new housing? So to your question to Tim, where is this new housing going to come from? Well, less of it can come within the city core of Denver. Most of it's going to have to come in the out, outer suburbs or the exurbs, as they like to call them. So if you look at a heat map of master plan communities, either under construction or planned, basically you look at 470, right? E470 from I-25 in the south to I-25 in the north, and most of the master plan communities are there. 
but we're also seeing now bigger developments out in Brighton, north what, east Brighton, into Wakbui, and out to Fort Morgan. So, um, and that's because one, well, because of all these L's that I talked about, but particularly land and the ability to actually entitle that land, take a raw piece of dirt, make it an improved lot, and then build vertically. I can't believe that the housing shortage is in houses a million dollars and more. When you say there are 195,000 shortage of houses, my guess is that the housing shortage is in a half million dollars or or less. Um, first of all, am I correct? And if I am correct, how do you see that being resolved? You're correct. I think what you're asking is, is there a heightened deficit at the lower price points, right? Around 500,000 versus a million. And you are very much correct. Um, And that's because, unfortunately, uh, you know, being able to build a um, $500,000 home, at least in a single family detached context, is next to impossible, depending on where you are. And that's why you're seeing a lot of um, the growth well out beyond the eastern ring of, of the suburbs. So that goes to land. That goes to land a lot, but also goes to law and ordinances, right? What sort of Regime, regulatory regime with sort of energy codes, which I know we'll get into later in other building codes. Um, what is their land use? You know, how long does it take to entitle a piece of dirt, really? We've got folks that, you know, have purchased dirt. It's taken them three, four years just to get to the approval process so that they can then go in and build the infrastructure. And that's before, you know, you're preparing a, a, or an improved lot, as they call it, um, which means the lot is ready to be Tim, I want to go back to you for a second. I had a chance to hear you in a public forum discuss what the upfront cost of just uh, starting a building happened to be, and I think we can all identify then as to why $500,000 or $350,000 houses aren't all that available. Could you share that experience with us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the old adage was, you know, your your developed lot should be about 20% of your overall uh, housing costs. So back in the day, you know, that would have been a $300,000 starter home is 60 to 70,000 fully developed all the infrastructure in, ready to build a house on it. You know, we do mostly multifamily and including for sale condo and for rent apartments. The land alone on apartments in downtown Denver is as much as $60,000 per unit. So if you think about that, a hundred unit deal now they're buying the land for six million dollars before you put the infrastructure in and before you do any other sort of pre-development work paying uh, for the fees and permits so it it's getting really expensive and i think we need to be a little more creative now in some of these urban infill sites like old shopping centers that are defunct big box shopping centers and and repurpose those into mixed-use communities. So there's challenges and opportunities is what I just heard you say. That's correct. Okay, good. Well, Evelyn, let's go to a challenge here if we could for a second. All right. Uh, Your report focused on the impact of energy codes on the housing affordability. Can you tell us more about the legislation? Yeah, and uh, this goes into what both Ted and Tim were talking about which is the L part, the laws and the regulations, which add to the cost to build a home. And so the new energy code legislation was House Bill 22-1362, and it was called Building Greenhouse Gas Emissions. And so basically it is... Wait a minute, building emissions? No. Building as in a, a structure. I, I, 
it is confusing. We don't want to build greenhouse gas emissions, but it was essentially to reduce reliance on natural gas in new residential and commercial buildings. And so it requires the adoption of these stringent energy codes along with electric and solar ready codes and green codes for new buildings and renovations. Stop, stop, stop. Where, where are all these codes coming from? It's as if, you know, somehow God implanted something here for us to read. Is this one of the Ten Commandments of clean air coming forward, or what do we have? Well, there are a couple of organizations that put together model building codes, along with model electrical codes, model energy codes. And so those are generally accepted by the construction and, and building um, industries. And so what a municipality or a state would do is to adopt these codes. And they're really for, you know, structures, making sure that they're safe uh, for people to live in. Well, I can understand building codes, but you're talking about code, clean air codes. Who are these folks that have appointed themselves to to be the czars of a clean air code? That's a great question. So in the legislation, uh, they have created a Colorado Energy Code Board, which is built up of stakeholders in Colorado who are supposed to develop these codes. And generally, we presume they will adopt uh, one of the model codes that is put out every two years. Now, are people like Ted and Tim a part of that group that puts these codes together that we can all say that, hey, people who are knowledgeable about the housing industry are know what they're talking about as far as cost and how it has to be done? I Well, certainly our association and our members, people much smarter than myself, will be a part, we hope, will be a part of this new Energy Code Board that Evelyn just described. So this is to be developed? It has not been developed yet. It's set pretty much a, a floor, if you will, the 2021 IECC or the International Energy Conservation Code as its baseline, and then it can kind of go from there. So this is a part of the legislation? It is part of the legislation. So you are going to be a part of it, and some of the folks like yourself will be there to hopefully come up with something that's reasonable and rational that we can all understand and say, okay, right. experts have had a chance to review this, and and it's not just somebody that's walked off the street with some ideas. Yeah, I, I think it's important. I don't want to dwell too much on the past, but it's important to understand when the bill is conceived, it was the Colorado Energy Office that was going to write a code and then stakeholder that code with those like the construction industry, home building, um, general con commercial general contractors, electricians, mechanical pl plumbers, uh, or and so on. But we stepped in, not just the home builders, but a, a pretty big coalition of those in the construction industry and the design industry and said, no, if we're going to do this, uh, you must have the experts in the room to help you craft that code. We, especially the home builders, said not only do you need to use that expertise, but you need to look at things that we've already discussed today and we'll probably continue to discuss, like simple payback periods and making sure that your return on investment, right? If, if you're really gaining 6.3% in energy efficiency in the built environment, what is that cost to the consumer? On the homeowner side, you know, it could be anywhere between $11,000, $40,000 a, a door. Um, and we can get into a little bit later some of the statistics that, wait, that price wait, wait, out. Wait, 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 stop, stop. Yep. 11000 to how much a door for what you're talking about in the law's electrification? So let me let me be clear. I'm glad you're asking that. So we, one of the one of the uncertainties with the bill that, that Evelyn's described is we don't know yet what that code is going okay. to be. We know that where the starting point is, which will be this 2021 International Energy Conservation Code. 
What we do know, though, is from national studies that compare the 2018 IECC or, and the 2021 IECC that we start to see a pretty big cost difference in the implementation or, the, or building to those codes, right? And then we have cities like Louisville, Colorado, that adopted not only the 2021 IECC, but Appendix RC, which basically means they wanted to achieve net zero energy on any new construction. Our, some of our builders, along with some national studies, went in there and said, if we are going to build to the 2021 IECC, it's the International Energy Conservation Code. Okay, got so it. The IEC, so it's one of the many suite of building codes okay. that Evelyn was just talking about. So they went in there and they said, okay, if we're going to use these new materials, if we're going to find the labor that is qualified to install these new materials, here's what the difference in cost is going to be. And that ranged from $11,450 between the 2018 and the 2021 code, $46,200 between that sort of beyond code, that Appendix RC that I just described in the Louisville code. Go ahead. There are savings associated to offset that additional cost? There, <laughs> that's a great question. And that's gotta be part of any conversation is, if we are gonna bring to bear these costs, these cost increases, where are we gonna offset costs somewhere else? Because if we don't, then we're just gonna make housing that much more unaffordable across the spectrum. So we don't have an answer. We don't yet have an answer, no. Oh, that's great. Tim, you're out there in the firing line. Uh, talk to us about what it actually takes to implement these energy codes from a construction perspective, and what would be the biggest difference, and how do you see the cost of building and owning a new home changing? Yeah, you know, just to tag on to what Ted was talking about there, you know, we're <clears throat> currently doing a project in Golden, 120-unit apartment complex, and Golden, like Louisville, adopted the new 2021 IECC, International Energy Conservation Code, but they said that wasn't good enough. We want to be 4% better, some arbitrary number. And remember, the whole goal behind adopting these codes is to reduce greenhouse gases, specifically CO2 emission. Let's understand why we're doing this first, and then we sure. can talk about how much it's going to cost. So the reason is we want to make our air clean, which we can all agree we need to do. There, you know, this bill's goal is to force it upon builders to basically implement these measures without drastically increasing the cost. But ultimately, it always ends up the consumer paying for it, whether they're renting an apartment or buying a condo or buying a single family home, all those costs are going to flow down to the buyer, making them less expensive. So this project in Golden... I don't, I don't want to argue with you, but yeah. I would I would suggest to you, Tim, that I end up paying for it because I'm an employer. And yep. that means if I want to hire somebody to come here and live here and you have to build a more expensive project, I somehow have to pay people enough so they can live here. That's a really good point, Earl. And and again, I think we need to we we need to think of these multi tier consequences of legislation. That's a great one. You know, like I'm just going to throw electric cars out there with the seventy five hundred dollar. That that isn't an incentive to the buyer to buy it. That's actually a profit to the auto manufacturer. That's seventy five hundred dollars more that the auto manufacturer is making on that car. So let's keep things in perspective here. So back to why we're doing this, we're reducing greenhouse gases. So Ted mentioned we're, we're reducing it by 6.3% here in, in Colorado in the climate zone we're in. 
But Colorado only produces 1.7% of the greenhouse, of CO2 specifically, because we're only a state of 5.5 million people in a country of 330 million. So we're a small contributor. So we're at the bleeding edge of implementing technologies that really haven't been used in these northern climates. So on this back to Golden, 120 unit, they also said you got to put 10% offset in uh, solar panels on the roof. So you're increasing electrical demand by putting in these cold climate heat pumps. They're called CCHP, cold climate heat pumps. They're rare. There's only about 90,000 being used in our climate zone right now. So they're not a proven technology. They certainly wouldn't work up in Vale or any mountain area. They, they work down to about 15 degrees, and then you got to supplement with resistive, like electric baseboard heat or some other source of heat. That project ended up adding about $3 million to the base, you know, if we would have used the 2018 code versus 2021. So $3 million divided by 120 units is 25000 per unit, real-world case of implementing these technologies. The bigger issue, too, is, you know, currently an apartment, a single, like a one-bedroom apartment, their utility bill, water, electric, sewer, gas, is only $35 to $50 a month, all in. So they don't consume a lot of energy. You know, we're estimating this is going to probably increase their bill because electricity costs more than gas. It's going to increase it by 20 to $35, so almost doubling the cost to live in an apartment. Uh, and, and then you can just grow that exponentially if you have a 3,000 square foot home. The other issue we, we have is that we can't produce enough electricity in our current power plants to meet this demand. And there's no way we're going to cover Colorado and solar panels, you know, not to mention the uh, ecosystems that may harm or wind turbines. So we have to have reliable and redundant backup energy in Colorado, which is currently produced 38% by coal. And it, it is clean coal that we're burning and they've done measures to reduce the emissions and then our gas fire plants are super clean right now but you know we're virtually at capacity in Colorado and now we're going to put this huge demand by electrifying we're talking single family homes but this this bill expands to commercial buildings as well without a plan to get the electricity from where it's produced to or even producing it to to where it's needed so we don't have the grid we don't have the substations so it, it, this is a huge issue that nobody is fully tackling. We're just talking about the cost to build the home, not actually to produce and transmit the electricity. Evelyn, uh, I don't mean to throw you a curveball, but I'm going to kind of throw something at you that uh, maybe your report doesn't cover in total. But uh, you focus in your report the energy code changes, you know, puts us on a path of beneficial electrification. Does that sound good? Beneficial electrification? And what I just heard, uh, you know, Tim say, is that yeah, there might be some beneficial electrification. Uh, we want all less CO two, and if you believe in that, what's going on there, which I think most of us do. How in the world do you put all of this in focus so that you don't end up uh, having this extraordinary increase in costs that are unnecessary? If we had a chance to look at the totality of how you want to try to reduce the CO two and where electrification fits into it. Yeah, that's that's one of the the biggest holes I think in in this thought process that we've been going through in terms of 
getting rid of greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, in my report, I talk about the energy codes because, as as Tim mentioned, it only applies to new buildings. But in order for the state to reach its greenhouse gas emission targets, they're going to have to electrify everything, which means retrofitting all of the buildings in Colorado. And and one of the things that I'm just trying to point out in my report is that nobody really knows what the full costs of this means, both to the consumer, homeowner, renter, but also to the utility providers. As Tim mentioned, you know, we don't even know what it would mean to upgrade the distribution, transmission, the grid to get all the this added electricity capacity to these retrofit houses. So all I am saying is that this is something that we should be very cautious about, that the energy code board that was put in to legislation should be looking at is how are we going to actually make an impact that does not increase the costs on the consumer, the home buyer. This ends up being very unsettling to me. I I don't know that I'm going to be any more settled if we get through with this. Um, <laughs> your report looked at a couple of estimates of electrifying an entire state. These are large numbers. That concludes part one of our series on energy codes, housing prices, and electrification. Part two will debut Friday, August 25th, available on Podcatchers Everywhere or under the podcast tab at www.commonsenseinstituteco.org.